Audio presents Volume 5 of the Master Key. Chapter 14 Turk and Tartar. The Tartars had arrived swiftly and noiselessly, and a dozen of the warriors still mounted were surrounding him. His helpless condition aroused their curiosity, and while some of them hastily cut away his bonds and raised him to his feet, Others plied him with questions in their own language. Rob shook his head to indicate that he could not understand. So they led him to the chief, an immense bearded representative of the tribe of Kara Kitai, the terrible and relentless black Tartars of Tibet. The huge frame of this fellow was clothed in flowing robes of cloth of gold, braided in jewels and he sat majestically upon the back of a jet-black camel. Under ordinary circumstances, the stern features and flashing black eyes of this redoubtable warrior would have struck a chill of fear to the boy's heart. But now, under the influence of the crushing misfortunes he had experienced, he was able to gaze with indifference upon the terrible visage of the desert chief. The Tartar seemed not to consider Rob an enemy, Instead, he looked upon him as an ally, since the Turks had bound and robbed him. Finding it impossible to converse with the chief, Rob took refuge in sign language. He turned his pockets wrong side out, and showed the red welts left upon his wrists by the tight cord, and then shook his fists angrily in the direction of the town. In return, the Tartar nodded gravely and issued an order to his men. By this time the warriors were busily pitching tents before the walls of Yarkand and making preparations for a formal siege. In obedience to the chieftain's orders, Rob was given a place within one of the tents nearest the wall and supplied with a brace of brass-mounted pistols and a dagger with a sharp zigzagging edge. These were evidently to assist the boy in fighting the Turks, and he was well pleased to have them. His spirits rose considerably when he found he had fallen in among friends. Although most of his new comrades had such evil faces, it was unnecessary to put on the character markers to judge their natures with a fair degree of accuracy. I can't be very particular about the company I keep, he thought, and this gang hasn't tried to murder me yet, as the rascally Turks did, so for the present I'll stand in with the scowling chief and try to get a shot at the thieves who robbed me. If our side wins, I may get a chance to recover some of my property. It's a slim chance, of course, but it's the only hope I have left. That very evening an opportunity occurred for Rob to win glory in the eyes of his new friends. Just before sundown, the gates of the city flew open, and a swarm of Turks, mounted upon fleet horses and camels, issued forth and fell upon their enemies. The Tartars, who did not expect the sally, were scarcely able to form an opposing rank when they found themselves engaged in hand-to-hand -hand conflict, fighting desperately for their lives. In such a battle, however, the Turks were at a disadvantage, for the active Tartars slipped beneath their horses and disabled them, bringing down both the animals and their riders to the earth. At the first onslaught, Rob shot his pistol at a Turk and wounded him so severely that he fell from his horse. Instantly the boy seized the bridle and sprang upon the steed's back, and the next moment he had dashed into the thickest part of the fray. 
Bullets and blows rained upon him from all sides, but the garment of repulsion saved him from a single scratch. When his pistols had been discharged, he caught up the broken handle of a spear and used it as a club, galloping into the ranks of the Turks and belaboring them as hard as he could. The Tartars cheered and followed him, and the Turks were so amazed at his miraculous escape from their bullets that they became terrified, thinking he bore a charmed life and was protected by unseen powers. This terror helped turn the tide of battle, and before long the enemy was pressed back to the walls and retreated through the gates, which were hastily fastened behind them. In order to prevent a repetition of this sally, the Tartars at once invested the gates, so that if the Turks should open them, they were as likely to let their foes in as to oppose them. While the tents were being moved up, Rob had an opportunity to search the battlefield for the bodies of the three Turks who had robbed him, but they were not among the fallen. Those fellows were too cowardly to take part in a fair fight, declared the boy, but he was much disappointed. Nevertheless, as he felt very helpless without the electric tube or the traveling machine. The Tartar chief now called Rob to his tent and presented him with a beautiful ring set with a glowing pigeon's blood ruby in acknowledgment of his services. This gift made the boy feel very proud, and he said to the chief, You're all right, old man, even if you do look like a pirate. If you can manage to capture that city so I can get my electrical devices back, I'll consider you a trump as long as I live. The chief thought this speech was intended to express Rob's gratitude, so he bowed solemnly in return. During the night that followed upon the first engagement of the Turks and the Tartars, the boy lay awake trying to devise some plan to capture the city. The walls seemed too high and thick to be either scaled or broken by the Tartars, who had no artillery whatsoever and within the walls lay all the fertile part of this oasis, giving the besieged a good supply of water and provisions, while the besiegers were obliged to subsist on what water and food they had brought with them. Just before dawn, Rob left his tent and went out to look at the great wall. The stars gave plenty of light, but the boy was worried to find that according to Eastern custom, no sentries or guards whatever had been posted, and all the Tartars were slumbering soundly. The city was likewise wrapped in profound silence, but just as Rob was turning away he saw a head project stealthily over the edge of the wall before him, and recognized in the features one of the Turks who had robbed him. Finding no one awake except the boy, the fellow sat upon the edge of the wall with his feet dangling downward, and grinned wickedly at his former victim. Rob watched him with almost breathless eagerness. After making many motions that conveyed no meaning whatsoever, the Turk drew the electric tube from his pocket and pointed his finger first at the boy and then at the instrument, as if inquiring what it was used for. Rob shook his head. The Turk turned the tube over several times and examined it carefully, after which he also shook his head, seemingly greatly puzzled. By this time the boy was fairly trembling with excitement. He longed to recover his valuable weapon, and feared that at any moment the curious Turk would discover its use. He held out his hand toward the tube, and tried to say by motions he would show the fellow how to use it. The man seemed to understand, but he would not let the glittering instrument out of his possession. 
Rob was almost in despair when he happened to notice upon his hand the ruby ring given him by the chief. Drawing the jewel from his finger, he made an offer, by signs, that he would exchange it for the tube. The Turk was much pleased with the idea, and nodded his head repeatedly, holding out his hand for the ring. Rob had little confidence in the man's honor, but he was so eager to regain the tube, he decided to trust him. So he threw the ring to the top of the wall, where the Turk caught it skillfully. But when Rob held out his hand for the tube, the scoundrel only laughed at him, and began to scramble to his feet in order to beat a retreat. Chance, however, foiled this disgraceful treachery, for in his hurry the Turk allowed the tube to slip from his grasp, and it rolled off the wall and fell upon the sand at Rob's feet. The robber turned to watch it fall, and, filled with sudden anger, the boy grabbed up the weapon, pointed it at his enemy, and pressed the button. Down tumbled the Turk without a cry, and lay motionless at the foot of the wall. Rob's first thought was to search the pockets of his captor, and his delight he found and recovered his box of food tablets. The record of event and the traveling machine were doubtless in the possession of the other robbers, but Rob did not despair of recovering them now that he had the tube to aid him. Day was now breaking, and several of the Tartars appeared and examined the body of the Turk with grunts of surprise, for there were no marks upon him to show how he had been slain. Supposing him to be dead, they tossed him aside and forgot all about him. Rob had secured his ruby ring again, and going back to the chief's tent, he showed the jewel to the guard and was at once admitted. The black-bearded chieftain was still reclining upon his pillows, but Rob bowed before him, and by means of signs managed to ask for a band of warriors to assist him in assaulting the town. The chief appeared to doubt the wisdom of the enterprise, not being able to understand how the boy could expect to succeed. But he graciously issued the required order, and by the time Rob reached the city gate, he found a large group of Tartars gathered to support him while the entire camp roused an interest in the proceedings and stood looking on. Rob cared little for the quarrel between the Turks and the Tartars, and under ordinary circumstances would have refused to side with one or the other, but he knew he could not hope to recover his electrical machines unless the city was taken by the band of warriors who had befriended him, so he determined to force an entrance for them. Without hesitation, he walked close to the great gate and shattered its fastenings with the force of the electric current directed upon them from the tube. Then, shouting to his friends the Tartars for assistance, he rushed in a body upon the gate and dashed it open. The Turks had expected trouble when they heard the fastenings of the huge gate splinter and fall apart, so they had assembled in force behind the opening. As the Tartars poured through the gateway in a compact mass, they were met by a hail of bullets, spears, and arrows, which did fearful execution among them. Many were killed outright, while others fell wounded to be trampled upon by those who pressed on from the rear. Rob maintained his position in the front rank, but escaped all injury through the possession of a garment of repulsion. But he took an active part in the fight and pressed the button of the electric tube again and again, tumbling the enemy into heaps on every side, even the horses and camels falling helplessly before the resistless current of electricity. The Tartars shouted joyfully as they witnessed this marvelous feat and rushed forward to assist in the slaughter. But the boy motioned them all back. 
He did not wish any more bloodshed than was necessary, and knew that the heaps of unconscious Turks around him would soon recover. So he stood alone and faced the enemy, calmly knocking them over as fast as they came near. Two of the Turks managed to creep up behind the boy, and one of them, who wielded an immense scimitar with a two-edged blade as sharp as a razor, swung the weapon fiercely to cut off Rob's head. But the repulsive force aroused in the garment was so terrific that it sent the weapon flying backwards with redoubled swiftness, so that it caught the second Turk at the waist and cut him fairly in two. Thereafter they all avoided coming near the boy, and in a surprisingly short time the Turkish forces were entirely conquered, all having been reduced to unconsciousness except a few cowards who had run away and hidden in the cellars or the garrets of the houses. The Tartars entered the city with shouts of triumph, and the chief was so delighted that he threw his arms around Rob's neck and embraced him warmly. Then began the sack of Yarkand, the fierce Tartars plundering the bazaars and houses and stripping them of everything of value they could find. Rob searched anxiously among the bodies of the unconscious Turks for the two men who had robbed him, but neither could be found. He was more successful later, for in running through the streets he came upon a band of Tartars leading a man with a rope around his neck, whom Rob quickly recognized as one of the thieves he was hunting for. The Tartars willingly allowed him to search the fellow, and in one of his pockets Rob found the record of events. He had now recovered all his property except the traveling machine, the one thing that was absolutely necessary to enable him to escape from this barbarous country. He continued his search persistently, and an hour later found the dead body of the third robber lying in the square in the center of the city. But the traveling machine was not on his person, and for the first time the boy began to give way to despair. In the distance he heard loud shouts and sounds of renewed strife, warning him that the Turks were recovering consciousness and engaging the Tartars with great fierceness. The latter had scattered throughout the town, thinking themselves perfectly secure, so that not only were they unprepared to fight, but they became panic-stricken at seeing their foes returned, as it seemed, from death to life. Their usual courage forsook them, and they ran terrified in every direction, only to be cut down by the revengeful Turkish scimitars. Rob was sitting upon the edge of a marble fountain in the center of the square when a crowd of victorious Turks appeared and quickly surrounded him. The boy paid no attention to their gestures, and the Turks feared to approach him. So they stood a short distance away and fired volleys at him from their rifles and pistols. Rob glared at them scornfully, and seeing they could not injure him, the Turks desisted. But they still surrounded him, and the crowd grew thicker every moment. Women now came creeping from their hiding places and mingled with the ranks of the men. Rob guessed from their joyous chattering that the Turks had regained the city and driven out or killed the Tartar warriors. He reflected gloomily that this did not affect his own position in any way, since he could not escape from the oasis. Suddenly, on glancing at the crowd, Rob saw something that arrested his attention— a young girl was fastening some article to the wrist of a burly, villainous-looking Turk. The boy saw a glitter that reminded him of the traveling machine, but immediately afterwards the man and the girl bent their heads over the fellow's wrist in such a way that Rob could see nothing more. While the couple were apparently examining the strange device, Rob started to his feet and walked toward them. 
The crowd fell back at his approach, but the man and the girl were so interested they did not notice him. He was still several paces away when the girl put out her finger and touched the indicator on the dial. To Rob's horror and consternation, the big Turk began to rise slowly into the air while a howl of fear burst from the crowd. But the boy made a mighty spring and caught the Turk by his foot, clinging to it with desperate tenacity, while they both mounted steadily upward until they were far above the city of the desert. The big Turk screamed pitifully at first and then actually fainted from fright. Rob was much frightened on his part, for he knew if his hands slipped from their hold he would fall to his death. Indeed, one hand was slipping already, so he made a frantic clutch and caught firmly on the Turk's baggy trousers. Then slowly and carefully he drew himself up and seized the leather belt that encircled the man's waist. This firm grip gave him new confidence and he began to breathe more freely. He now clung to the body of the Turk with both legs entwined in the way he was accustomed to cling to a tree trunk when he climbed after cherries at home. He had conquered his fear of falling and took time to recover his wits and his strength. He had now reached such a tremendous height that the city looked like a speck on the desert below them. Knowing he must act quickly, Rob seized the dangling left arm of the unconscious Turk and raised it until he could reach the dial of the traveling machine. He feared to unclasp the machine just then for two reasons. If it slipped from his grasp, they would both plunge downward to their deaths. And he was not sure the machine would work at all if any other position than fastened to the left wrist. Rob determined to take no chances, so he left the machine attached to the Turk and turned the indicator to zero and then east, for he did not wish to rejoin either his enemies, the Turks, or his equally undesirable friends, the Tartars. After traveling eastward a few minutes, he lost sight of the city altogether, so still clinging to the body of the Turk, he again turned the indicator and began to descend. When at last they landed gently upon a rocky eminence of the Quainloon Mountains, the boy's strength was almost exhausted and his limbs ached with the strain of clinging to the Turk's body. His first act was to transfer the traveling machine to his own wrist and to see that his other electrical devices were safely stowed in his pockets. Then he sat upon the rock to rest until the Turk recovered consciousness. Presently the fellow moved uneasily, rolled over, and then sat up and stared at his surroundings. Perhaps he thought he had been dreaming, for he rubbed his eyes and looked again with mingled surprise and alarm. Then, seeing Rob, he uttered a savage shout and drew his dagger. Rob smiled and pointed the electric tube at the man, who doubtless recognized his power, for he fell back scowling and trembling. "'This place seems like a good jog from civilization,' remarked the boy, as coolly as if his companion could understand what he said. "'But as your legs are long and strong,' You may be able to find your way. It's true you're liable to starve to death, but if you do, it will be your own misfortune, not my fault. The Turk glared at him sullenly, but did not attempt to reply. Rob took out his box of tablets, ate one of them, and offered another to his enemy. The fellow accepted it ungraciously enough, but seeing Rob eat one, he decided to follow his example and consume the tablet with a queer expression of distrust upon his face. Brave man! cried Rob laughingly. You've avoided the pangs of starvation for a time, anyhow, so I can leave you with a clear conscience now. Without more ado, he turned the indicator of the traveling machine and mounted into the air. 
leaving the Turk sitting upon the rocks and staring after him in comical bewilderment. Chapter 15 A Battle with Monsters Our young adventurer never experienced a more grateful feeling of relief and security than when he found himself once more high in the air, alone and in undisputed possession of the electrical devices bestowed upon him by the demon. The dangers he had passed through since landing at the city of the desert and the desperate chance that alone had permitted him to regain the traveling machine made him shudder at the bare recollection and rendered him more sober and thoughtful than usual. We who stick closely to the earth's surface can scarcely realize how Rob could travel through the air at such dizzying heights without any fear or concern whatsoever, but he had come to consider the air a veritable refuge. Experience had given him implicit confidence in the powers of the electrical instrument whose unseen forces carried him so swiftly and surely, and while the tiny watch-like machine was clasped to his wrist, he felt himself to be absolutely safe. Having slipped away from the Turk and attained a fair altitude, he set the indicator at zero and paused long enough to consult his map and decide what direction it was best for him to take. The mischance that had swept him unwittingly over the countries of Europe had also carried him more than halfway around the world from his home. Therefore, the nearest way to reach America would be to continue traveling to the east. So much time had been consumed in the desert oasis that he felt he must now hasten if he wished to reach home by Saturday afternoon, so he quickly came to a decision. He turned the indicator and began a swift flight to the east. For several hours he traveled above the great desert of Gobi, but by noon signs of a more fertile country began to appear, and dropping to a point nearer the earth, he was able to observe closely the country of the Chinese, with its crowded population and ancient but crude civilization. Then he came to the Great Wall of China, and to mighty Peking, above which he hovered some time, examining it curiously. He really longed to make a stop there, but his late experiences fresh in his mind, he thought it much safer to view the wonderful city from a distance. Resuming his flight, he presently came to the Gulf of Liao Tong, whose fair face was freckled with many ships of many nations, and so on to Korea, which seemed to him a land fully a century behind the times. Night overtook him while speeding across the Sea of Japan, and having a great desire to view the Mikado's famous islands, he put the indicator at zero, and coming to a full stop, composed himself to sleep until morning, that he might run no chances of being carried beyond his knowledge during the night. You might suppose it no easy task to sleep suspended in mid-air, yet the magnetic currents controlled by the traveling machine were so evenly balanced that Rob was fully as comfortable as if reposing upon a bed of down. He had become somewhat accustomed to passing the night in the air, and now slept remarkably well, having no fear of burglars or fire or other interruptions that dwellers in cities are subject to. One thing, however, he should have remembered. He was in an ancient and little-known part of the world, and reposing above a sea famous in fable as the home of many fierce and terrible creatures. While not far away lay the land of the dragon, the Cymurg, and other ferocious monsters. Rob may have read of these things in fairy tales and books of travel, but if 
so they had entirely slipped his mind. So he slumbered peacefully and actually snored a little, I believe, towards morning. But even as the red sun peeped curiously over the horizon line, he was awakened by a most unusual disturbance. A succession of hoarse screams and a pounding of the air as if from quickly revolving blades of some huge windmill. He rubbed his eyes and looked around. Coming toward him at his right hand was an immense bird, whose body seemed almost as big as that of a horse. Its wide-open, curving beak was set with rows of pointed teeth, and the talons held against its breast and turned threateningly outward were more powerful and dreadful than a tiger's claws. While fascinated and horrified, he watched the approach of this feathered monster. A scream sounded just behind him, and the next instant, the stroke of a mighty wind sent him whirling over and over through the air. He soon came to a stop, however, and saw that another of the monsters had come upon him from the rear, and was now with its mate circling closely above him, while both uttered continuously their hoarse and savage cries. Rob wondered why the garment of repulsion had not protected him from the blow of the bird's wing, but as a matter of fact it had protected him, for it was not the wing itself but the force of the eddying currents of air that had sent him whirling away from the monster. With the indicator at zero, the magnetic currents and the opposing powers of attraction and repulsion were so evenly balanced that any violent atmospheric disturbance affected him in the same way that thistle-down is affected by a summer breeze. He had noticed something of this before, but whenever a strong wind was blowing, he was accustomed to rise to a position above the air currents. This was the first time he had slept with the indicator at zero. The huge birds at once renewed their attack, but Rob had now recovered his wits sufficiently to draw the electric tube from his pocket. The first one to dart toward him received the powerful electric current direct from the tube, and fell stunned and fluttering to the surface of the sea, where it floated motionless. Its mate, perhaps warned by this sudden disaster, renewed its circling flight, moving so swiftly that Rob could scarcely follow it, and drawing nearer and nearer every moment to its intended victim. The boy could not turn in the air very quickly, and he feared an attack in the back, mistrusting the saving power of the garment of repulsion under such circumstances. So in desperation he pressed his finger upon the bottom of the tube and whirled the instrument around his head in the opposite direction to that which the monster was circling. Presently the current and the bird met, and with one last scream the creature tumbled downward to join its fellow upon the waves, where they lay like two floating islands. Their presence had left a rank, sickening stench in the surrounding atmosphere, so Rob made haste to resume his journey and was soon moving rapidly eastward. He could no longer control a shudder at the recollection of his recent combat and realized the horror of a meeting with such creatures by one who had no protection from their sharp beaks and talons. It's no wonder those Japanese draw ugly pictures of monsters, he thought people who live in these parts must pass most of their lives in a tremble. The sun was now shining brilliantly, and when the beautiful islands of Japan came into sight, Rob found he had recovered his wonted cheerfulness. He moved along slowly, hovering with curious interest over the quaint and picturesque villages, and watching the industrious Japanese patiently toiling at their tasks. Just before he reached Tokyo, he came to a military fort, 
and for nearly an hour watched the skilled maneuverings of a regiment of soldiers at their morning drills. They were not a very big people, compared with other nations, but they seemed alert and well-trained, and the boy decided it would require a brave enemy to face them on a field of battle. Having at length satisfied his curiosity as to Japanese life and customs, Rob prepared for his long flight across the Pacific Ocean. By consulting his map, he discovered that he should maintain his course due east as before. He would arrive at a point in America, very near to San Francisco, which suited his plans excellently. Having found that he moved more swiftly when farthest from the Earth's surface, because the air was more rarefied and offered less resistance, Rob mounted upward until the islands of Japan were mere specks visible through the clear, sunny atmosphere. Then he began his eastward flight, the broad surface of the Pacific, seeming like a blue cloud far beneath him.